Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number four of our discussion of Alice's Adventures. Uh, we're going to see if we can make it up uh, through the Mad Tea Party today. I don't know if we'll get so far as the Rose Garden, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see what we can do. Um, anyway, so um, quick announcement before I begin. I just wanted to remind folks we are now what are we barely more than we're fourteen hours ish from uh, our deadline. So tomorrow, uh, tomorrow by noon Eastern time, is our, that's our deadline to notify the venue about our final numbers uh, for in-person attendance at Mythmoot this year. So Mythmoot coming up very soon, about two weeks away now. Uh, two weeks from now, I'll be on the road to uh, Virginia uh, to head down to Mythmoot. Um, but we do have to notify them by tomorrow. So tomorrow at noon Eastern time, whatever time of day that translates to for you, that's when our deadline is. So if you want to register in person, um, then you uh, you can do that. There's still time, barely, right? Get right on it because there's only uh, about 13 and a half hours left. So um, uh, definitely um, uh, get on that if you want to attend with us. So tomorrow, Thursday, uh, June 9th, 2022 is the deadline. I say the I say the year sometimes because of course I know that sometimes people will watch these like years later and get confused about my announcements. But there we are. Um, uh, okay, so wanted to make sure everybody remembered na- that. Now let's jump straight back into Alice. It's time for um uh uh time for the last comment from the caterpillar, uh, the hookah smoking caterpillar, uh, before we head into pig and pepper. This is the caterpillar's commentary on the Father William poem, where we ended last time. That is not said right, said the caterpillar. Not quite right, I'm afraid, said Alice timidly. Some of the words have got altered. (laughs) Yeah, I noticed that too. It is wrong from beginning to end, said the caterpillar decidedly, and there was silence for some minutes. The caterpillar was the first to speak. What size do you want to be? it asked. Oh, I'm not particular as to size, Alice replied hastily. Or Alice hastily replied. One doesn't like changing so often, you know. I don't know, said the caterpillar. Alice said nothing. She had never been so much contradicted in all her life before, and she felt that she was losing her temper. "'Are you content now?' said the caterpillar. "'Well, I should like to be a little larger, sir, if you wouldn't mind,' said Alice. Three inches is such a wretched height to be.' "'It is a very good height indeed,' said the caterpillar angrily, rearing itself upright as it spoke. It was exactly three inches high. "'But I'm not used to it,' pleaded poor Alice in a piteous tone, and she thought to herself, "'I wish the creatures wouldn't be so easily offended.' "'You'll get used to it in time,' said the caterpillar, and it put the hookah into its mouth and began smoking again. Okay. Um, All right. Now. um, Patterns, again. Patterns with uh, the two things that I wanted to point out primarily here. One is looking at the larger pattern of the caterpillar's response to or interpretation of Alice's speech, right? Um, What is the pattern that we see, right? In particular, what he keeps doing, which really um, 
pulls Alice up short, right, is when she says, only one doesn't like changing so often, you know. And he responds by saying, I don't know. Um, and being offended, right? Um, she wishes the creatures wouldn't be so easily offended, right? Um, now there's some irony here, right? A bunch of irony that's going on here. What exactly is the caterpillar doing when it says, I don't know? Right? Our, the narrator draws our attention to the fact that Alice had never been so much contradicted in all her life before. This is one of her prime. So her primary responses, like her take homes from this experience, is one: the creatures around here contradict one all the time, right? And two: the creatures around here are very easily offended, right? Those are Alice's two take homes from this conversation. This is near the very end of her conversation with the caterpillar. Um, yes, Jackrabbit Monster, you're exactly right. Um, the creatures are taking her polite Victorianisms literally. Yeah, David is saying a, a very similar thing. Um, yes, she is saying things that she's not thinking about. That is, she is uttering words and phrases which are mere social conventions, right? Um, only one doesn't like changing so often, you know. Um, if you actually listen to that, what is what is she saying? I'm not particular as to size. Only one doesn't like changing so often, you know. Now, what has she said? What does she mean? And why has she said it that way? Right? If this is what we this is what the caterpillar's words essentially invite us to do, right? Um uh Yes, J.J., it's much like when Gandalf grants Bilbo's pardon uh, when he begs it, right? He's going to give Bilbo what he's, begged, what he's begged him for, right? Which is his pardon, right? Um, uh, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. Um, okay, so what does she mean? Let's, let's start with that. What does she mean? She starts off, I'm not particular as to size. So she, you know, because he's asked her, what size do you want to be? And she's like, oh, it's it's not that I'm, um, you know, pining for a, a, a particular size. But what she seems to be meaning is, I just, I, I, I don't like the instability, right? I don't want to keep changing sizes unexpectedly and have to figure out a new how to deal with my environment. Right, as was being dramatized by the sort of puzzle of the golden key and the door, right? Um, <clears throat> that she um, she couldn't be the right size when she wanted to be the right size. Um, but uh, but at the same time, she's been there. You know, <clears throat> there have been surprises as far as her size is concerned, right? Um, but she doesn't say, "I don't like." not knowing what size I'm going to be, or I don't like the sudden change in how I'm related to my environment, right? That's not what she says. What she says is, one doesn't like changing so often. So there are two figures of speech that she uses in order to convey her meaning, which seems to be, I don't like the uh, the unexpected changes, right? I don't like the instability of how I'm interacting with my environment. I don't like the changing of size. Um, but there are two rhetorical conventions that she employs, I think, clearly without really thinking about it, right? First is the shift of the subject. She doesn't say I. She doesn't speak in the first person. She says one. 
one doesn't like changing so often. Now, we don't use that expression often anymore. It's, uh, it's not wholly unknown in modern English, but it's very rare um, because to a modern ear, it has a rather stilted sound to it. One doesn't, right? Um, you always sound like a snob. If, uh, at least in America, you always sound like a snob, uh, if you say that. Um, but, um, but yes, mad violinist, you're exactly right. It's an assumption of universality of experience by replacing I with one. She is making a claim that it, this is, she's not just stating her own personal preference here, right? She's not just saying personally, as far as I am concerned, I am not enjoying never knowing what size I'm going to be five minutes from now, right? Instead, she generalizes it, or rather she asserts, she, she assumes, uh, mad violinist, just like you say, that everyone believes this, right? When one uses the word one, right, it does generalize it, right? Um, one thinks this, right? All people think this. Um, one doesn't like changing so often, and then she doubles down on it, right? You know, at the end. Um, now, the you know, comma, you know, tagged on at the end of a statement is not generally an assertion, right? An assertion of um, the knowledge of the other person, right? Like, I know what you know, and this is in that pool of things, right? <clears throat> it's um, a gesture towards inclusion, right? Um, it's almost... It tends to be used, I think, almost as like an invitation to understanding, right? Like, sure, you know what I mean, right? Surely you'd, like, if you, um, e even if you don't have the experience, you might apply your imagination, right, to um, understand how it is that I feel or to understand this perspective, right? Um, it's, again, it's not generally an assertion of, like, again, I, I, I am confident that you have this information, right? Yeah, it is also an invitation for the other person to respond. Mighty Felix, you're exactly right. Um, like it's it's like a conversational cue, right? You're supposed to say something. You're supposed to agree now, right? Uh, your line is, oh, yes, of course, or something to that effect, right? It does provide, uh, provide a cue, um, a cue to the other person. So there are two ways in which her change, that is the difference between what she has actually said and what she appears to mean, um, both of those two changes are presumptuous, right? Um, <clears throat> in a sense, uh, shifting what is merely a statement of her own opinion into an assertion of what someone else thinks and feels, right? Now, again, this is not Alice being wicked or... Um, you know, ignoring others or, I mean, this is, these are, this, these are just conventions, right? People just talked like this. Um, uh, she's her use of these rhetorical techniques is, I believe wholly unconscious, right? She's speaking like polite people speak, but the caterpillar does not play along, right? As, normally one would play along, right? And it calls her up on the claim, the statement she has made, you know, right? Um, 
taking it not as some kind of conversational tag, some kind of, you know, conversational cue, right, in that little tag phrase at the end. Um, and Rachel Point, Port points out, think of the changes a caterpillar, a caterpillar goes through, right? Right, exactly. They were talking about that before, um, where Alice was was making some assertions, like speaking like she knows better than the caterpillar what the caterpillar's experience is going to be. Because in school, in her lessons, she's learned all about how caterpillars turn into butterflies, right? And so knowing what the future holds in store for this caterpillar, um, she uh, is confident to assert that it is, it's um, going to experience some changes. Um, so she, on the one hand, she's, she tries to, uh, um, uh, she tries to, uh, get she's this is that particular conversational gambit by Alice you may recall is in regards to her um her again complaining about changing her own size so much and the caterpillar not seeming to really care very much about how she was feeling about that and so she was trying to link it to something within the sphere of the caterpillar's well not experience but in the caterpillar's world right but yet in doing so she was making assertions about what the caterpillar was likely to think about it, um, that he would find it strange to become uh, a chrysalis and then a butterfly. And he disagreed forcefully that it, he would not find it strange at all. Um, anyway, so as far as the irascibility of Thistledown, I think um, there are a couple things here. One is simply... A lot of the characters in the Alice books, who are not Alice, um, are. This is one of the dominant themes, well, motifs at least, um, in um, the Alice books, both of the Alice books, is this drawing our attention to the words that we say um, and drawing our attention, moreover, to the amount of work that we leave other people to do actually to under like we, there, there are many things that we say um, which require others to play along with us pretty actively, right? To really kind of enter into what they know we mean, right? Um, sometimes it's as simple as a sarcastic statement, right? Where again, if you don't play along with a sarcastic statement, a gulf opens up a gulf of communication opens up pretty quickly, uh, and it's awkward, right? The caterpillar is doing something similar here, right? Um, the caterpillar won't go along. So by having this, this is a this is a trend, as I say, in a lot of the creatures that Alice meets, both here and in through the in, in Looking Glass House, um, she she finds people who just don't play along like this, and that's in itself and it draws attention to a lot of elements of her speech. But here's the other thing. Remember the problem that Alice was having with the Dormouse, right? What kept happening? Not the Dormouse. The Dormouse is in the future. I'm talking about the mouse that she was first swimming with and then who then attempted to dry her very kindly with the recitation of that very dry passage and then um, who recited the, t the tale poem, right? The very sad, the long, sad tale. Um <clears throat> And Alice kept 
the 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 gap that opened up between them was not because the mouse was refusing to play along with Alice, but <clears throat> Alice refused to invest herself in the mouse's point of view, right? One might drop a reference, perhaps, to one's cat, especially if one is as fond of one's cat as Alice obviously is, right, to her cat Dinah. But she not only refers to dogs and cats, both, in conversation with this mouse, she allows her conversation to move into the uh, specific area of boasting about how good they are at catching mice and rats, right, uh, the dog and the cat. Um, and the obviously, the level of social... Um, well, I was going to say social ineptitude, but it's not just ineptitude, obliviousness, right? Um, and we talked about this. Alice does not take in, it seems like Alice does not take in that there is another person, that that other person is quite different from her being, of course, of a quite different species, right? Um, and who would therefore look at the world in a quite different way and not be charmed and thrilled to hear about her ferocious pet cat. Um, extreme social insensitivity, Jocelyn, sure, at the very least. Um, and now, you, so you take that situation, right? We remember back to that situation and then look at what the caterpillar is now doing to Alice, right? Um, or, no, let me instead say what Alice was not doing for the mouse and what Alice is now, through her figures of speech insisting that the caterpillar does for her, right? Notice she puts her foot in it very similar, very similarly here as she did not, as she doesn't bring up, you know, creatures that kill caterpillars, at least. So in that sense, she does better. Um, but you look at how she offends it with the height thing, right? Um, there is a similarity, right? Perhaps lesser in severity, the situation, but um, there's a similarity between... Um, boasting to a mouse about what a good mouse catcher your cat is, um, and saying to a three-inch high creature that three inches is such a wretched height to be, right? Um, the, there's the same kind of degree of self-absorption. She is not thinking beyond herself in either one of those situations. But as the caterpillar draws our attention and Alice's attention to her own wording, her own phrasing persistently insists that other people invest themselves in her and her perspective, right? Not just listening, not only listening to what she was saying, which is more than she did for the mouse when the mouse was telling its long, sad, sad tale. It requires them not only to listen to what she's saying, but to invest themselves imaginatively in her and her perspective in order to see what she means and what she's trying to get at. Oh, she's not actually saying that she knows what I know about, you know, what it is like to change size, right? She only she only just meant that as a, a you know, an invitation for me to agree or an invitation for me to empathize with her, right? Um, you have to invest yourself in imagining the perspective and motivations of the person who says it. That's what those expressions demand of people. Now, that, that demand, it's not an abnormal social demand, right? Many things in our conversation make those kinds of demands, right? Um, you can tell, just think, again, as I said with the sarcasm example, think of other examples when that has misfired one way or another, right? When someone has mistaken you, when you 
you were joking about so maybe it's not even not just sarcasm but you were joking about something and somebody took it seriously right or the opposite right you were serious about something and somebody took it for a joke um and the awkwardness or worse than awkwardness that can some, sometimes come for that many of our conversational um and even linguistic conventions rely upon this kind of social empathy this kind of social connection between people um Alice has shown a lack of it, right? And now the creatures are also showing a lack of it. It's manifesting in a different way, right? But I think that's why we're, we get the reference to her being contradicted. Because, um, of course, that's another thing that polite people don't do very often, do they? Right? Think about Victorian conversation. Any of you have ever read... It's, I, it's not exactly Victorian, because I think that this is pre-Victoria, in fact. But anyway, 19th century polite speech, right? Um... A flat disagreement with some, something like what the Caterpillar said. I don't know, right? Um, any of you who uh, have read much 19th century stuff, um, what would be the polite way to disagree? If somebody said, only one doesn't like changing so often, you know. Um, what would be the polite thing to say? If you don't want to go along with it, Right. If you don't want to just mutter a polite nothing like, oh, to be sure. Right. That would be one way to say nothing really at all. Right. Now, it sounds like you're really saying something. If you like to be sure. Right. Um, would mean, um, um, you know, sounds like a firm affir affirmation. But of course, in social context, oh, oh, to be sure, just means. I've made a vaguely positive noise in your direction so as not to disagree with you about that thing you just said, right? Um, uh, something like, um, uh, well, I don't know. I like that one. Yeah. Well, I don't know, right? Um, he's saying a similar thing to the caterpillar, right? Um, but less forcefully, right? Um, or to say, um, uh, right, um, I've heard that some do, right? Well, well, I don't know. I've heard that some do. Um, right. Uh, to say something like, um, um, oh, I very much see that. Right. That's an interesting one, Jocelyn. Right. To create a distinction where you're separating yourself from it. You're not saying you feel the same thing, but you're not disagreeing with him. And just to, the way the caterpillar keeps just stonewalling her. I don't know. Right. And then, you know, after he contradicts, you know, it is a very good height indeed. Then there's, there's, where is it there's, that there's silence? Oh, yeah, no, there's silence for some minutes at the beginning. It was wrong from beginning to end. Again, I, that's clear. That's honest. We didn't even talk about that exchange, but Alice is doing the same thing, right? Not quite right. Some of the words have got altered. She's inviting the caterpillar to be polite, right? He has said a relatively neutral thing, right? Um... That is not said right. Not quite right. Some of the words have got altered. Um, and it, right, it did seem a bit off, yes, would have been a, a much politer response, mad violinist, right? Um, uh, or even, you know, to respond by um, sort of a compliment which yet affirms, in fact, the wrongness, right? Um, or like something like, um, uh, it is easy to get confused or, you know, or like, or, you know, 
reciting poetry can be so troublesome or something like that, right? Where you're, you're, that still can be really cutting, right? Um, but, but, but nevertheless, um, yeah, good. Jackrabbit Monster says, I'm surprised he didn't call her I'm on I'm Afraid, which is another one of those phrases which does not really mean exactly what it says, right? And I think Jackrabbit, the reason he she didn't he didn't call her on that is that it's a statement about herself, right? Perhaps she's fearful, he doesn't know, right? What he calls her on is when he she makes statements about him, like you know, right? Um but um uh, but anyway, he's having none of it, right? None of those sort of social games. It is wrong from beginning to end. Um, she believes that the problem is that the creatures around here are so easily offended. First the mouse, and now the uh, caterpillar, right? Man, these creatures are touchy. And they are like it's not to say that they're not acting badly in some ways. You know, this, this if you went around acting like this, and I think we've all known some people who do kind of act like this, right? Um, people who deviate from expected social conventions. Um, uh, you know, who uh, who might like? Sorry, I, thinking nineteenth-century stuff. I've got like Jane Austen and other things in my head, so I'm I'm uh, I'm thinking of. Um, Lady Catherine de Bourgh and how she prides herself on her frankness of temper, right? Um, people who pride themselves on their frankness, right? And don't play this kind of uh, game and sugarcoat things and uh, mutter polite nothings or whatever, um, but will, you know, tell you exactly what they think because that's a virtue in them, right? Um, we've all known some people like that, I think. Um, we've seen again, breakdowns of, uh, you know, sort of social connection in this kind of way. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, uh, yeah. Um, it's not that the caterpillar is acting handsomely, right? Um, and yet Alice does not have much ground to stand on in a complaint that she would want to make because although it's in very different ways, she wasn't rude to the mouse or to the caterpillar in the same way, right? And yet, there is a reciprocity here between them, even though she feels like she's the victim, right, of his touchiness, right, and his, uh, um, uh, you know, and his, uh, uh, well, again, the extreme frankness of the caterpillar's character. Um, I said there were two things. That was one. (laughs) The other, which will be shorter, I think, um, is this is the second reference. And whenever something is repeated like this, I can't help but think it important. <clears throat> and that is, do you remember, what should we be remembering when we hear in the very middle of this passage here, Alice had never been so much contradicted in her life before, and she felt that she was losing her temper. Um... Do you remember? That should jump out at us. If we're reading carefully, that should jump out at us. Do you remember? Um, do you remember what the caterpillar told her at the beginning of their conversation, at the opening of chapter five? Not the very opening, but in the beginning of chapter five. The caterpillar told her that she must keep her temper. You must keep your temper. Yes. Keep your temper. That was the caterpillar's advice. And now the narrator is casually informing us that Alice is beginning to lose her temper. 
Now, I'm not sure about this. Tell me what you think about this. This is a theory of mine, but I'm not sure if it's justified. Do you think that Lewis Carroll might be playing on that concept? Um, we don't often think about what that phrase means. Keep your temper, right? Or to lose your temper. Whether one keeps or loses one's temper. But I wonder if Lewis Carroll was enough closer to it from we uh, that he um, was more aware of it and was making a joke, even a pun, on this. So, um, your temper. Uh, it's about your humors. It's a medieval thing. Um, it's how your humors are balanced and tempered uh, with each other. So your temperament is how your humors are balanced in your body. Um, that's what the phrase means originally. Um, so to lose your temper. So if you keep your temper, that means you keep yourself balanced in your normal way, right? Um, you can tell because you're acting, um, uh, you're acting, uh, um, uh, you're acting like yourself, right? You're acting like normal, which hopefully is a good thing. Um, <clears throat> but when you lose your temper, you start acting very differently, right? Um, and um, yes, the temper, as in metallurgy, um, mad violinist, is uh, related. It's the same idea, right? Um, that is, again, how things are like mixed and balanced, right? In order to make the correct, uh, to have everything in its correct ratio, right? That's it's the same. It's the same idea. Um, so, um, again, you lose your temper and your emotional control is gone, right? Your balance, your internal balance is different. So originally, um, it was a physiological, it was understood to be a physiological thing, right? Your humors are all out of whack, right? Um, you know, too much collar and your, um, that's C-H-O-L-E-R, not C-O-L-L-A-R, of course. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that's, that's what, now we, we retain that language. Like, so this is one of those examples, of course, of metaphorical phrases, which were, used to be literal, then became metaphor, then were retained long after any familiarity with the substance of the metaphor was gone, Right. Um, most people don't even think of a temper as a, a balance of anything. Right. Not only do they not know it has anything to do with the humors, um, but um, uh, they don't even think about that. Like temper now just means um, being angry. Right. Like, um, uh, you know, when a two year old throws a temper tantrum. Right. Um, there's only one kind of temper. Exactly. Tarlonia was just thinking exactly that same thing. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, so we've long since lost what this metaphor was. I'm wondering, do you think Lewis Carroll had lost it entirely? Here's why I ask this. I can't help but think that it's connected to the changing sizes so much. One doesn't like changing so much. Alice's complaint is that her size is unstable. Her body 
she can't keep the temper of her body, right? She, her body keeps getting out of whack, um, growing bigger and growing smaller. What was the caterpillar's advice? Keep your temper. Well, what does that have to do with anything, right? And now she's losing her temper. To which the cater in, in response to which the caterpillar says, "Are you content now?" Right. Um, anyway, I um, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I in my head I want to associate those two things. Um, keeping uh, Alice's keeping her temper with Alice's retaining the size that she wants to. She is going to. Now, here's the reason why I'm not sure that this is the case. Or is it? Maybe? I don't know. Um, she is soon, right after this, well, not right after this, but not too long after this. Um, how is it that she is going to be able to retain control over her size? Which doesn't just mean remaining the same size permanently, but actually gaining the power to shrink and grow herself at will to the extent that she wants to. It's the mushroom. This, the mushroom this caterpillar is sitting on, right? As it walks away, it's going to give her the secret. One size makes you bigger and the other size makes you, other side makes you smaller. She's going to tear chunks off one, each side of this mushroom. And she's eventually going to, um, uh, she's eventually going to master this so that she can, by nibbling the correct amount at each hunk of uh, mushroom, she can shrink and grow herself exactly as she pleases, right? Uh, to exactly whatever size she wants to be. The caterpillar is going to give her the secret, right? It's going to give her the antidote. Uh, it's going to put her own body back under her control again, right? Um not instantly, and we'll get to what happens instantly. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, so as I say, I want to associate these two things of her temper and her size, but this would suggest if I'm right, if I'm right and the joke is being played out, one would think that Alice's frustrations would diminish, that we would see a difference in Alice's emotional temper as well. Um, and I'm not sure that we do. I don't know what you guys think about that, but, um, anyway. Okay. But let's, um, we, we can sort of experiment with that. Um, here's what happens immediately, right? Um, immediately she grows very, very tall, but this is not just a proportional growth here. Her, her neck grows tremendously long. I, I, other parts of her body are growing uh, elongated as well, right? Um, but her head is now above the trees on a radically elongated neck, right? And she's talking to a pigeon who is accusing her of being a serpent because she has this huge, long, snaky neck, Right? And just as I'd taken the highest tree in the wood, continued the pigeon, raising its voice to a shriek, and just as I was thinking I should be free of them at last, they must needs come wriggling down from the sky. Ah, serpent! But I'm not a serpent, I tell you, said Alice. I'm a... I'm a... 
Well, what are you? said the pigeon. I can see you're trying to invent something. I, I, I'm a little girl, said Alice rather doubtfully, as she remembered the number of changes she had gone through that day. A likely story indeed, said the pigeon, in a tone of the deepest contempt. I've seen a good many little girls in my time, but never one with a neck such as that. No, no, you're a serpent, and there's no use denying it. I suppose you'll be telling me next that you've never tasted an egg. I have tasted eggs, certainly, said Alice, who was a very truthful child. But little girls eat eggs quite as much as serpents do, you know. I don't believe it, said the pigeon. But if they do, why, then they're a kind of serpent. That's all I can say. This was such a new idea to Alice that she was quite silent for a minute or two, which gave the pigeon the opportunity of adding, You're looking for eggs. I know that well enough. What does it matter to me whether you're a little girl or a serpent? It matters a good deal to me, said Alice hastily. But I'm not looking for eggs, as it happens. And if I was, I shouldn't want yours. I don't like them raw. Okay. Um... Okay. This comes back to the theme of Alice's identity. Remember Alice concluding that she must have woken up as somebody else today, right? Um, because if she were herself, um, you know, the, everything is different. And so therefore she can't be herself, right? Um The pigeon is begins by touching a rather raw nerve for Alice, right? By asking a relatively simple question, right? What are you? I can see you're trying to invent something, right? She should be able to answer clearly, but she's rather doubtful. I'm a little girl, she said. As she remembered, she, she said Alice rather doubtfully, as she remembered the number of changes she had gone through that day. Um, is she still a little girl? Does it count? She is very painfully aware of the fact that her body now does not resemble a normal little girl's body at all, right? Not with this enormously long neck, right? Um, yes, Mighty Felix, it is like the caterpillar asking, who are you, right? Except the caterpillars seem to be asking, who are you? Which doesn't sound exactly the same. Um, yeah. Well, but Mudmore, is she a little big girl? Or is she a big little girl? Um, again, it keeps changing about, doesn't it? So it's really hard to say. Um, Alice is not confident. She's been not confident for a while. Um, now we see her being not only lacking confidence about who she is, is she Mabel, right? Uh, has the worst come to the worst and she's Mabel now? Um, or is she even a little girl, right? Now she doesn't even know what she is, for sure, right? She stumbles over it, um, uh, which the pigeon calls out, like, you're trying to invent... I've, I've caught you in a lie, right? You're obviously a serpent, or else you would tell me what you actually are, right? And you can't even think up a lie fast enough, right? Um, uh yeah. Um, then it goes on to prove that she's actually a serpent, right? And Jack Rabbit, I agree with you. I do think that there's a play on 
simple syllogistic reasoning, right? Um, all serpents eat eggs. Little girls eat eggs. Therefore, little girls are a kind of serpent, right? I mean, that's, um, uh, yes, that's a logical fallacy. Um, and I'm not sure that that isn't a kind of thing she might have done in some of her lessons. Um, but um, anyway, Alice doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know what she is. And why not? Because of the number of changes she had gone through that day. And remember how she felt that the changes, the changes in the world around her, the changes in herself, likely changed, were a consequence of who she was changing. And so probably what she was, what she is, has changed too. And the very new idea that um, if you've if you've tasted eggs, then you must be a kind of serpent, right? I suppose you'll be telling me next that you've never tasted an egg. Well, no, of course, Alice has tasted eggs, right? She eats eggs all the time. So, therefore, she's just proven, as Jack Rabbit was pointing out, that um, uh, little girls are a kind of serpent. I love how the pigeon won't believe her, right? I don't believe it. I don't believe that little girls would eat eggs. That's a horrifying idea. Notice how this is... Notice the kind of similarity, right? The kind of similarity between this and the mouse situation and between this and the, 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 the caterpillar situation, right? On the one hand, it's like the mouse situation in that it is taking something which we consider normal in our world, like your cat who catches mice, right? But then turning things around into a situation where all of a sudden that now sounds very different, right? When you're talking to a mouse, um, when you are really small and you're talking to a mouse, how good your cat is at catching mice is a very different kind of topic of conversation, right? Um, and there's a direct parallel to that here. Well, of course, little girls eat eggs, right? That doesn't actually mean that she is like an egg-stealing, pigeon-slaying serpent, right? Um, that's not the same thing. Um, and yet, when you're talking to a pigeon who is concerned for the safety of her eggs, all of a sudden, the eggs that, you know, like the soft-boiled eggs that you routinely eat for breakfast begin to look a little bit different, right? You don't think of your cat as, you know, uh, going on a, like, uh, genocidal spree, killing every rodent it sees, right? Or attempting to, anyway. Um, that's just not the way that, that's not your normal frame of reference for that, right? Similarly, you don't think of yourself as, you know, taking and killing the children of, of a bird, right? Um, when you have your soft-boiled egg for breakfast in the mornings. Um, and yet, change the framework a little bit, and things look very different, right? Um, Mad Violinist points out she may have eaten pigeon as well. It's very possible. Pigeon pie was a thing. Um, yes, yes. Um, 
but um, yes. Now, JJ, that's a very good observation. Alice's reason for correcting the pigeon um, is still about herself. She doesn't want to be identified with a serpent, not because she wants to put the pigeon at ease, right? And notice, JJ, even when Alice begin, begins attempting to reassure the pigeon at the end, right? Um, it's extremely lukewarm, right? Um, I'm not looking for eggs as it happens. And if I was, I shouldn't want yours. I don't like them raw. Oh, just stop. Stop talking, right? Stop, stop, stop talking. Um, I don't, like, I don't happen to be looking for eggs at this moment. I might be five minutes from now, but right now I'm not in the egg market. So don't worry. That's very, that's very reassuring, right? Oh, and if I were looking for eggs, which might happen almost any minute, right? Um, it wouldn't be your, trust me. No, 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 it wouldn't be your eggs, right? And anyway, I don't like them raw. I mean, it's like, seriously, imagine, you know, a human mother... And somebody saying, oh, don't worry, I'm not going to eat your baby. I don't like babies raw. Is that comforting? Would you find that comforting? Right? It's like, okay, right. So, um, I, first of all, you're just conjuring up in the head the idea of you're cooking the babies, right? Which is not an idea that you want in your head, right? Um, anyway, so it's... It, it's um, JJ, I, I agree. She's clearly, even when she does get around to attempting to reassure the pigeon, she does so very poorly indeed, right? She's still suffering from the same issue that she was with the mouse before, right? Um, it's like those, the two things, what we were seeing with the mouse and also with the caterpillar, um, that is kind of coming into collision with her fundamental doubts about her own, uncertainties about her own identity, right? And now, of course, it's, it is to her opening up the general question, well, what is the difference between little girls and serpents? How, 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 actually, how, how do they actually differ, right? I mean, they're not the same thing. Little girls are not serpents. And yet, um, yeah, exactly. First Fish is imagining somebody saying, you're a giant, you eat babies. And the giant responding, well, not today. And I don't like them raw anyhow. Right? Again, yes, you would not be reassured uh, by that statement for sure. Um, uh, anyway, so... Notice how Alice has gotten from who am I? What do I know? What is the significance of what I know? What is the significance and reliability of what I know? Um, who am I really, right? Um, and now gotten all the way to um, what am I? What is a little girl? Is it, in fact, a significant distinction to say I'm a little girl and not a serpent? How do little girls differ uh, from serpents, right? Um, well, apparently relatively little as far as uh, their egg-eating habits are concerned. Um, hang on to this. We'll come back to it in chapter six. Um, 
here we are in chapter six, meeting the Duchess. Uh, we've just met the uh, Cheshire Cat. Um, and she's talking about the Cheshire Cat to the Duchess. I didn't know that Cheshire Cats always grinned. In fact, I didn't know that cats could grin. They all can, said the Duchess, and most of them do. I don't know of any that do, Alice said very politely, feeling quite pleased to have got into a conversation. You don't know much, said the Duchess, and that's a fact. Alice did not at all like the tone of this remark, and thought it would be as well to introduce some other subject of conversation. While she was trying to fix on one, the cook took the cauldron of soup off the fire, and at once sent to work, throwing everything within her reach at the Duchess and the baby. The fire irons came first, then followed a shower of saucepans, plates, and dishes. The Duchess took no notice of them, even when they hit her, and the baby was howling so much already that it was quite impossible to say whether the blows hurt it or not. "'Oh, please mind what you're doing,' cried Alice, jumping up and down in an agony of terror. "'Oh, there goes his precious nose!' as an unusually large saucepan flew close by it, and very nearly carried it off. "'If everybody minded their own business,' the Duchess said in a hoarse growl, "'the world would go round a deal faster than it does.' "'Which would not be an advantage,' said Alice, "'who felt very glad to get an opportunity "'of showing off a little of her knowledge. "'Just think what work it would make with the day and night. "'You see, the earth takes twenty-four hours "'to turn round on its axis. "'Talking of axes,' said the Duchess, "'chop off her head.'" Without exception, my favorite transition in this entire book. Talking of axes, chop off her head. Um, oh, fantastic. Okay. Um... Once again, Alice having problems with conversation. Um, once again, her confronting terrible rudeness, right? But notice the rude thing that the Duchess says. First of all, the, the Duchess just contradicts her again, right? I didn't know that Cheshire cats always grinned. In fact, I didn't know that cats could grin. They all can, and most of them do. Now, that's okay, right? Contradictory, but it's not too bad. Um... Alice herself contradicts, right? I don't know any of them that no, she, she doesn't contradict. Again, notice that's her non, her negation without contradicting, right? She doesn't say, no, you're wrong. Most cats do not, in fact, grin, right? Um, instead, she says, I don't know any that do. That's a flat contradiction of what you just said, right? But it's a polite one. It's merely turning it into a first-person statement, right? Um... And the, to which the Duchess responds, you don't know much, and that's a fact. Right? Now, um, what, um, <laughs> I apologize, folks. Um, I just got, like, logged out of my chat thing, so I've lost it. Let me see if I can get it back. Um, uh, anyway, um, oh, hooray, I got it back. Um, uh, what I was saying, the Duchess, right. Um, notice also, you remember why this, this thing that the Duchess said is going to be particularly stinging, right? You don't know much and that's a fact. This is exactly what Alice was fearing, right? I mean, she might as well just have called her Mabel and had done, right? Alice very much likes showing off her learning, but it has never gone well when she's tried to do that, 
right? Because it's turned out that everything has come out wrong. The poetry that she knows um, has been, um, uh, you know, got messed up. Um, her, um, uh, her, you know, math wasn't coming out right. Her geography wasn't coming out right. Um, and, um, so the Duchess's contradiction, you don't know much and that's a fact, is true on a couple levels, right? Um, it's true because, first of all, she's, her lessons, things have not gone well since she's been here, right? Um, so badly that she's afraid she's actually Mabel, um, but also, of course, it speaks to the... Alice has been very confused ever, for good reason ever since she came down the rabbit hole, right? She doesn't know much at all about anyone in this world, about how this world works, right? She's only just starting to figure out some of the rules, like with the help of the, you know, the mushroom chunks that she's holding, right? She can, she can now moderate her size. Um, but... Uh, but apart from that, there's still many, many things that she just does not understand at all, right? Um, it is a fact that she doesn't know much, certainly not much about this world, right? But of course, then there's a third sense in which that statement is also true, right? Which is, it's a brutally honest, it's a brutally honest thing that one could say to any seven-year-old. You don't know much, and that's a fact. No, she's not seen much of the world yet. There's many things that she hasn't learned yet or seen. Sure. Um, it is a fact. It is a fact. Though rather brutally stated, right? Um, Alice gets upset again. Gets upset when the cook starts throwing things at the Duchess and the baby. Um, she is afraid that its nose is going to be broken off its face. Ripped off its face by the saucepans that are flying by. The Duchess. Now, so Alice is, this is an interesting moment because Alice is being kindly here. Alice is showing concern for someone else. That seems a step forward, doesn't it? Um, wanting to help the baby, right? Um, and the Duchess growls at her about minding one's own business, right? If everybody minded their own business, the world would go around a deal faster than it does. Um, that sentence ends in a strange place, right? Um, the world would go on better, right? But probably not actually rotate faster. And Alice points out we actually wouldn't want the Earth to rotate faster, right? She's going to show off a little knowledge, show that she does know a good deal, and that's a fact, right? Um, and here, notice that the fact even comes out right. She's quite correct about um, the Earth taking 24 hours to turn around on its axis, and uh, um, that that would you know, make a crazy work with the day and night. Um, the Duchess, absolutely not interested, right? Seizing on her word in a very remarkable way, talking of axes, chop off her head. 
repaying, reciprocating her kindness, not just with rudeness, but with this brutality. Speaking of brutality, um, oh, don't bother me, said the Duchess. I never could abide figures. And with that, she began nursing her child again, singing a sort of lullaby to it as she did so, and giving it a violent shake at the end of every line. Speak roughly to your little boy, and beat him when he sneezes. He only does it to annoy, because he knows it teases. Chorus, in which the cook and the baby joined. Wow, wow, wow. While the Duchess sang the second verse of the song, she kept tossing the baby violently up and down, and the poor little thing howled so that Alice could hardly hear the words. I speak severely to my boy, and I beat him when he sneezes, for he can thoroughly enjoy the pepper when he pleases. Chorus. Wow, wow, wow. Um, <laughs> funny thing. I was um, doing a little web searching to see if there was a, uh, if I could find an analog, like if there was a, uh, a lullaby that he was deliberately adapting, like the other poems that we've seen. I couldn't find anything. Um I, again, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not a, uh, a Lewis Carroll scholar, um, but I was just, I was doing a little casual searching to see if I could find anything. <laughs> I found several places where this poem <clears throat> was, um, anthologized or included. And there were a couple of places where I, um, uh, I found it and without context, just extracted as a poem. Um, and there was this one site where, like, the, there, there were, you know, comments open on the poems. And the, the comment, the first comment on this poem was just by somebody who didn't know the context at all, right? Um, and they were just like, this is the most horrible lullaby I've ever heard. I can't even believe anyone would write a poem like this, right? Um, it's, it, was, it was just this, there was this quiet shock uh, in response to, like, I, I, speak roughly to your little boy and beat him when he sneezes. Talk about that social gap that opens up when someone's making a joke and the other person doesn't perceive that it's a joke. Um, uh, man, that was a really funny comment. Just, it was a really funny comment, especially like in the Alice context, right? I mean, in a sense, that's like a classic Alice in Wonderland, uh, internet comment, right? Um, uh, it sounded almost like Alice herself, actually, right? Um, what Alice might have said in response to this, indeed, not too dissimilar from what she is doing, right? Although she's more worried about the physical safety of the baby, right? Um, then she's uh, then she would appear to be worried about um, the violent words themselves. We have here in the Duchess's um, actions and lullaby, a simple reversal, right? Um, lullabies are designed to calm babies, right? And send them to sleep. She is agitating her baby, right? Shaking him and then throwing him up in the air. Um, she's being violent to her baby. Um, Clearly, to say the least, she's doing the opposite of soothing her baby, right? Um, just as the words themselves, though it has the shape of a song. So let's see, what's the what's our meter here? Um, 
uh, this is in IMs, right? Speak roughly to your little boy. Speak roughly to your little boy and beat him when he sneezes. Same as usual. Four three, right? Um, the the same rhymes. The same metrical scheme we've seen several times before. He only does it to annoy because he knows it teases. Um, all right. Again, we have a, a queer reversal, right? Um, and notice, by the way, it even imitates... Um, think of the number of lullabies which in which you sing about singing a lullaby to the baby, right? Um, I... Um, I remember long, long ago when my sons were babies, um, having, you know, we had a couple lullaby CDs that family members gave us that we would sometimes put on just to have music in the background. We we're trying to put the baby to sleep. I'm like, okay, play, play the lullaby CD. And I, I was reflecting one evening how many of them are songs that are singing about singing songs to babies. And, um, and I was I was just kind of thinking about the you know like the like infinite regress that seems to be invited um, in that kind of situation, and we see that being reflected here too, right? She's singing a rough speaking a rough song about speaking roughly um, uh, as she's beating him. She's singing about beating him, right? Um, uh, what's going on here? What's I, this is a bizarre scene. It's a bizarre scene. What's happening? What cues do we get to understand? Alice is very perplexed, very disturbed, right? She's jumping up and down in agitation. You don't treat babies like this, right? Um, speak roughly to your little boy and beat him when he sneezes? Beat him when he sneezes. Okay. So it's not just talking about garden variety severity with your child, right? Um, you know, like um, a severity of discipline or something like that. Um, you know, there are, are, are certainly many who have made arguments for beating your children constructively, right? Um, uh educationally and and that sort of thing. That's generally the context there. Um, and this is not in that context, right? When he performs this um, involuntary action of sneezing, beat him. Why? Because he only does it to annoy. Um, we are projecting a malicious motive on this involuntary action of sneezing, right? Um uh, and then, yeah, the, the, the malicious motive because he knows it teases, right? He's just, he's, he only does it to annoy because he knows it teases, right? He's, this is, uh, he's, he's sneezing with malice aforethought. That's why it's appropriate to speak roughly to him and beat him, right? Um, second stanza. Um, hang on a second. I'm wondering if I have gotten my comments back. I don't know that I have. I think they might be frozen. Um, anyway, um, sorry, I'm trying to... Uh, uh, okay, there we go. I'm back now. All right, hopefully. We'll see. Um, 
notice the relationship between the first stanza and the second stanza. I speak severely to my boy. I beat him when he sneezes. The first stanza uh, is a general, states general principles, right? Um, Speak roughly. This is what you should do, right? Um, And then the application. I do this. First person. I speak severely to my boy. Look at me applying the principles that I was just articulating, right? For he can thoroughly enjoy the pepper when he pleases. That last stanza would seem to be the key thing here. For he can thoroughly enjoy the pepper when he pleases. Oh, he did! Mighty Felix, I did miss it! Yeah. Um, uh, Jackrabbit, can you link to it? I, I figured there must be one, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, let's get the original. That'd be awesome. Um, so yeah, Jackrabbit, if you can link to it, I would really appreciate it. Um, anyway, as I say, that last... Um, that last two, that last, those last two lines um, seem to be something like, I don't know, the turn or something in this poem. Um, For he can thoroughly enjoy the pepper when he pleases. I don't know. I mean, I see the link between sneezing and pepper, I think. Um, uh, I don't think I get this. But it seems to be a turn. Notice how it turns towards um, the positive. Right? Not just saying negative things. He only does it to annoy because he knows it teases. He can thoroughly enjoy the pepper when he pleases. Oh, I see. Hang on a second. It's still a complaint. He can thoroughly enjoy the pepper when he pleases. When he wants to, he can thoroughly enjoy the pepper. Right? Right. Okay, no, I see. It is actually repetition. He only does it to annoy. He doesn't have to sneeze. Right? Right. He doesn't have to sneeze. Um, it's, um, it's just... Uh, yes. When he pleases... When it pleases him, he can enjoy the he can thoroughly enjoy the pepper, right? But when he sneezes, he's just doing it to annoy. So you should beat him and speak severely to him. I I think Yeah, no, I think that's the context of that last line. So it is just it is still a repetition. It's not turning things around at all. Okay, Speak Gently by David Bates, huh? Hang on, i got to look this up. I was looking for that and failed to find it, so let's see what we got. Okay. Speak Gently, you said? Mighty Felix? Okay, let's see. Speak Gently by David Bates. Clicked on the wrong thing. Okay. Hmm. 
Gosh, that's a long poem. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced this is the one. I mean, the meter is similar. The meter is similar. The, um, hang on. So I just Googled it and here's what I came up with. Hang on. Let me, let me bring it over here. Um, okay. I'm going to resize it here. Unfortunately, this is an eminently resizable page. Let me blow that up a little bit because that's tiny. Oh yeah, that's perfect. It's just excellent right there. Okay, all right, here we go. Um, okay, so here's the David Bates poem. The meter is similar. Speak gently. It is better far to rule by love than fear. Speak gently. Let not harsh words mar the good we might do here. Speak gently. Love doth whisper low the vows that true hearts bind. And gently friendship's accents flow. Affection's voice is kind. Um, certainly this is the kind of poem that Lewis Carroll seems to be continuously making fun of, right? Um, so that sounds promising. The speak gently, um, speak roughly, speak gently correspondence, uh, um, definitely seems to, oh, sorry, I got my, I got it, I got it. Sorry, I forgot about that. My floating Signum logo there. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, usually that portion of the screen is empty. Um, It's a good candidate in these ways. What seems... What doesn't feel quite right is not just the lullaby thing. Um, I mean, speak gently to the little child, its love be sure to gain. Teach it in accents soft and mild, it may not long remain. Wow. Teach it in accents soft and mild, it may not long remain. Um... Let us pause for a minute to reflect with gratitude on the decrease of the infant mortality rate in our century. Um, uh, we no longer have to say things like that uh, in pedantic poetry. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah. See... I don't know. As I say, I'm not convinced. It certainly doesn't correspond. It's not a parody in the same way. Uh, it's not a parody like the um, um, the other... Um, uh, yeah. Um, no, it may not long remain, uh, Chris, I, I believe is referring to infant mortality. It may not long remain alive. It may not, may not long remain full stop. I mean, a fairly significant percentage of children did not reach the age of 12. Um, still in the 19th century, this is, uh, um, still a big deal. Um, very, very few families, um, had never lost a child. Like that's, that would have been uh, one would have been very fortunate indeed uh, to raise an entire family and have one hundred percent of one's children, like one hundred percent of the children one conceived. Um, you know, the, the the mother conceived grow to, you know, grow safely to adulthood. That would have been um, beating the odds. Uh, uh, 
not impossible, but um, a very great blessing indeed. Anyway, sorry, that sober contemplations on um, infant mortality. Um, by the way, little free little piece of commentary. This is one of the things that modern people almost never think of when they read older books. Um, think of how much it would change your entire view of the world if you lived in a world where a significant percentage of children died before they got to age 12, when it was normal uh, to lose your child. Um, and how that might affect how you would think about children, talk about children, include children in stories, right? Um, it's just a, a, such a huge, like, amazingly impactful alteration in how the world works, right? Um, and yet it's something that um, modern readers almost never think about when they when they read older books. Um, but um, anyway... Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, Jack Rabbit does say a theme of Alice seems to be Carol's distaste for morally improving poetry. Yeah. No. I mean, I I can see that. Again, I, I'm not. I'm not. So I, I don't think he's parodying it. It's not the the themes of the of Carol's poem of the Duchess's poem here. The, the, it's not sufficiently close in that way. Right. I mean, and it doesn't have to be the very tight kind of parody that the Father William poem is, or even the Crocodile poem. Um, but it just, it doesn't go in the same direction that this does, right? Um, I mean, it starts with speak in the imperative, and so both of them, speak roughly and speak gently, are, um, um, uh, both of them are giving advice, right? Are sort of advising, um, uh, people, but, um, here's, here's, here's the difference. Here's the difference is getting to me, Jack Rabbit. Speak gently to the little child. Its love be sure to gain. Teach it in accents soft and mild. It may not long remain. The focus of that stanza is on the adult. Right? It's telling you what to do with children and why. But it's the focus is on adult behavior, right? And the um uh whereas speak roughly to your little boy and beat him when he sneezes, he only does it to annoy because he knows it teases. The emphasis there is on the child. Right. He only does it to annoy because he knows it teases in particular. Um, uh, there's nothing about the child's perspective. Right. Um, and so therefore I just they're, they're kind of going in different. They're not parallel, um, parallel or reversed. Right. In the ways that the other. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. Anyway. OK. So eh, maybe. It's, again, it's it's a strong candidate, if only because of the, um, if only because of the tone of it, right? I mean, this kind of didactic poetry is just the sort of thing that I was looking for too. Um, but um, anyway, uh, it's interesting. Somebody was saying, 
right, John Shaw wrote an article where he lists 56 poems that have the phrase speak gently as a general echo. That's fascinating, Thistledown. Um, it suggests, that suggests to me that here Lewis Carroll is not necessarily closely parodying a particular poem like he's done before, but rather invoking a genre, essentially, right? Um, and, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so the reversal of the genre, um, and the kind of sympathetic feeling that one is supposed to have towards the child is spoken against here, right? For my money, this scene, this whole scene with the Duchess and the baby and the pepper, I don't even get the pepper. I think I understand this chapter least of any chapter in the book so far. Maybe someday I'll understand it better. Um, there's reversal. I mean, I can I find the lullaby funny because it's a funny reversal of both of lullabies and of that kind of um, the speak gently pedantic sort of trend here. Um, but that never seems quite enough. I don't know how to fit it into the general pattern. Um, other than seeing that there's a similar kind of, just as we were seeing Alice's, the gap of Alice's social sympathy, right? With the mouse and with the caterpillar. Um, this is an extreme version of that in some sense, right? The extreme lack of social sympathy with the child. Um, but um, certainly what's happening here is all wrong, Right? Everything is all wrong. There's a mother and her child, and she's beating the child. And she sings a lullaby to her child, which is a violent lullaby about beating the child, punctuated by shaking and chucking around the child, right? And the cook, what does the cook do, right? The cook is using spices instead of using spices to make the food savory is using spices to um, could just cause everybody to sneeze. And the throwing things. And notice what, it th what the cook throws. The cook throws fire irons and saucepans. In other words, all of the implements that a cook would normally be using, right, would in it is instead of like taking those tools to herself in order to um, uh, do her cooking job, right? She's throwing all her tools away from herself at the Duchess and the baby, right? Um, so everything is upside down and topsy-turvy, and that makes a certain amount of sense. We haven't seen nearly so much pure reversal as that in this book so far. Um, but... Um, yeah. It's interesting, Sarah. Sarah says, we've seen Alice being insensitive to others. This is taking that to an extreme that even Alice recognizes is wrong. 
Yeah, I mean, perhaps the point is her response, right? When she is confronted by, you know, an extreme reversal of proper social behavior, right? Um, she is quite shocked by it. And then the Duchess throws the baby at her, right? And Alice catches the baby. Um, and then what's the problem? The baby will insist on turning into a pig, right? The baby grunted again, and Alice looked very anxiously into its face to see what was the matter with it. There could be no doubt that it had a very turn-up nose, much more like a snout than a real nose. Also, its eyes were getting extremely small for a baby. Altogether, Alice did not like the look of the thing at all. But perhaps it was only sobbing, she thought, and looked into its eyes again to see if there were any tears. No, there were no tears. If you're going to turn into a pig, my dear, said Alice seriously, I'll have nothing more to do with you. Mind now. The poor little thing sobbed again, or grunted, it was impossible to say which, and they went on for some while in silence. Alice was just beginning to think to herself, now what am I to do with this creature when I get it home? When it grunted again, shook so violently that she looked down into its face in some alarm. This time there could be no mistake about it. It was neither more nor less than a pig, and she felt that it would be quite absurd for her to carry it any further. So she set the little creature down, and felt quite relieved to see it trot away quietly into the wood. If it had grown up, she said to herself, it would have made a dreadfully ugly child. But it makes a rather handsome pig, I think. And she began thinking over other children she knew, who might do very well as pigs, and was just saying to herself, if only one, if one only knew the right way to change them, when she was a little startled by seeing the Cheshire cat sitting on a bough of a tree a few yards off. Um, David says, I can't decide if this baby was always a pig, if there are echoes of uh, Circe here. Tarlonio is getting George MacDonald vibes. I would also say, uh, do you remember the scene in Prince Caspian when C.S. Lewis solved the question of the right way to change um, children who might do very well as pigs into pigs? Um, uh, yeah, J.J. was remembering that same scene. Um, J.J., I am 100%, not 95, not 80, 100% convinced that C.S. Lewis was thinking of this scene when he wrote that scene. Now, I think he was thinking of Circe, too. Um, or Circe also, I should say, perhaps. Um, but I absolutely think C.S. Lewis was thinking of this scene. Um, just as I think that J.R.R. Tolkien was thinking about Alice uh, and Lewis Carroll during those early pages of The Hobbit when Gandalf and um, when Bilbo is begging Gandalf's pardon and good morninging, good morninging him. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm less convinced, Arthur, that J.K. Rowling was thinking of this scene. Um, I'm 100% convinced C.S. Lewis was. I'm less convinced that J.K. Rowling was with Dudley Dursley. But, um, but it's possible. It's possible. Think how this maps onto some of the issues Alice has been having and that we've been seeing with Alice up to this point, right? Um, she was trying to save the baby. Remember, in particular, she was concerned about its nose, right? That the saucepan was going to, to, to take off its nose. 
Um, and the fact that it actually has a very turn-up nose, much more like a snout than a real nose, is one of the first things she notices about it when she's carrying it. Um, uh, and she's not sure what it is. Just as you'll remember not too long ago, she wasn't quite sure what she was because she had changed so much. And she kept on changing and before didn't know what she could do about it. And now the baby keeps changing. It's turning into a pig. She tries to scold it out of changing. If you're turning, going to turn into a pig, my dear, I'll have nothing more to do with you. Mind now. Right? Um, she doesn't... Um, is that uh, the princess and Curdie? Tarlonio? Is that the one you're thinking of? Um... It's been a long time since I've read that. I don't remember it very... I don't remember the pig stuff. Yeah. Curdy. Um, yeah, it's the the princess and Curdy is the second... The second... Uh, uh, the second... Goblin book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, the instability. It was her size... And then that mapped onto her identity, her nature. Is she a little girl, in fact? And are little girls or are little girls not serpents, right? Now, right after that, she finds a baby who is not sure what it is. Is it a baby or is it a pig? Was it always a pig? Has it become a pig? She's speaking to it as if it's actually changing in her arms. It also looked like it was something else. It was like a starfish at one point, right after she holds it. It's a peculiar shape, right? And then it becomes a pig. Um, and you'll notice there's a kind of gentle pressure here. I, gentle, which is strange because this has not been a gentle chapter to this point. But am I the only one thinking about bacon? Maybe it's because... We just got eggs and little girls eating eggs, right? But there seems to me to be a um, a weight to some of her questions. What am I to do with this creature when I get it home? Well, what do you think will happen to a pig if you bring it home? Right? If it had grown up, what would happen when it grows up? Well, when p pigs grow up... Right? I mean, um, um, ask what's her name? Blanking. The girl from Charlotte's Web. Um, what happens to pigs when they grow up? Right? Um, yeah, David was just thinking about Charlotte's Web, too. Um, Fern. That's it. Thank you, Alyssa. Um, ask Fern what happens when p little pigs grow up. Right? Um, I, and um, she wouldn't you know, she wouldn't eat babies, right? Oh, wait, except she did eat egg, you know, bird babies, eggs. And now this other baby that she's holding is turning into an egg accompaniment, right? Or like a future egg accompaniment, right? Um, and I don't think that she would be able to say that she had never tasted bacon or pork or, you know, uh, sausages or anything like that, right? 
Um, again, it, we don't go there. We don't go all the way to there. But I can't help but think about that in the context of this. The, the, there's the instability of the baby, which brings me right back to Alice not knowing what she is. Is she a serpent or is she a little girl or are little girls serpents after all, right? Um, JJ says, cows, sheep, and chickens all have other potential uses. Are pigs raised for anything except meat? No. I mean, to dispose of things, right? Like garbage disposal is the other uh, function that they have, but it's um, pleasantly tied with, uh, 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 with, with, with eating them. Um, some for truffle hunting, perhaps, jackrabbit, but that's pretty niche, really. Um, and not in England, in any case. Um, so um, I don't think... Um, um, I don't think that uh, pigs have any other have any other function. Um, yeah, speaking oracles, Jocelyn, you're right. Uh, occasionally, you get the odd oracular pig. Um, but you must admit that to be an unusual occupation for a pig. Not unheard of, obviously, but an unusual occupation for a pig. The reference, of course, uh, is to the uh, uh, Prydain series by Lloyd Alexander uh, Hendwin. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, so questions of identity uh, and the instability of identity still arising. Um, let's um, see if we can get into chapter seven. I'm almost ready to declare myself a week behind now. Um, actually, I think I'm going to declare myself a whole week behind soon. The cat. She runs into the Cheshire cat again after she leaves. Um, well, after she runs into the giant puppy, whom I skipped. Um, the cat's just accused her of being mad, and she doesn't like being accused of being mad. The cat says, oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. How do you know I'm mad, said Alice. You must be, said the cat, or you wouldn't have come here. Alice didn't think that proved it at all. However, she went on, and how do you know that you're mad? To begin with, said the cat, a dog's not mad. You grant that? I suppose so, said Alice. Well, then, the cat went on, you see, a dog growls when it's angry and wags its tail when it's pleased. Now I growl when I'm pleased and wag my tail when I'm angry. Therefore, I'm mad. Now, um, this is the passage, Jack Rabbit. I was thinking about this passage when you were talking about how um, Lewis Carroll seemed to be making fun of logical fallacies before, like the, the serpents and the girl and the little girls, right? Um, I was thinking of this passage as I think we get some pretty clear um, evidence here that um, Lewis Carroll is making fun of illogic, right? Not just things that aren't logical, um, but the process of illogic, uh, the misapplication of logic and logical proof. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I growl when I'm pleased and wag my tail when I'm angry, therefore I'm mad. Um Lots of uh, assumptions being made here, right? First of all, the fact that a dog isn't mad in the first place has merely been, been granted by Alice and somewhat diffidently at that. Um, but more, you see what else that his conclusion relies upon, right? Um, th therefore, I'm therefore I'm mad, right? Um, well, but he's not a dog, right? So... 
it's not just that dogs are not themselves mad. Like you don't only have to grant that dogs are not mad. You have to grant further that the behavior which is sane to a dog is sane in a normative manner, right? Across the board. Um, dogs are not only themselves not mad, but they establish the standard of non-mad behavior, right? If you want to be not mad or if, if you want to be understood to be not mad, you need to act exactly like a dog, right? Which I can tell you as a dog owner is very, very poor advice indeed. I would not recommend um, that you uh, emulate entirely the behavior of a dog uh, if you want to be thought sane. Um, but... Um, But you see the lapse. Where is the logical fallacy in the cat's reasoning here, right? And again, the it takes an observation, right? A dog acts one way. I act quite differently in a way which is like the reverse of how a dog acts. Therefore, if the dog is not mad, I must be mad because I act differently from the dog. But, but he's not a dog. Right? He's a cat, and growling when he's pleased and wagging his tail when he's angry is quite not mad for a cat. Right? Again, you have to you have to accept the dogs as establishing normative behavior for everybody. Um, indeed, doesn't there seem to need to be again a little bit of that obliviousness, a little bit of that blindness? It's not here. It's not like Alice. Um, being oblivious to other people, the cat's doing it backwards, right? The cat is refusing to contextualize its own self, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly, Jocelyn. Yeah, I, I don't think... Um, I don't think I would accept as a normative baseline anybody that eats its own poop and rolls around in the decomposing corpses of others uh, deliberately. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jen Artanis, I agree. I think that there's there are several plays here, right? Um, there's a joke implicit in the statement to begin with, a dog's not mad, Right? There are only a few animals to whom the adjective mad is actually quite often added, right? Not just saying, like, the cat's mad, right? But to have a mad dog, right? To be a mad dog, that's a thing, right? Um, it's the animal where... It's the animal that is most commonly referred to with that adjective, right? Classified. Sometimes you'll have, like, a mad bull... Uh, that's a phrase that I've heard many times, but a, a mad dog is a thing, right? That's a thing. I mean, it's like a rabid dog, right, is what it means. But, um, um, but people don't use that phrase generally. It's not a common phrase with any other kind of animal. It's most common with dogs. So I'm not saying that all dogs are mad. I'm just saying it's a strange thing for the cat to ask to grant in the first place, right? Um, it's true... Uh, Arthur, um, you know, in the post nineteen what uh, post nineteen ninety five world, um, 
uh, mad cow disease uh, is uh, uh, is but uh, that's quite recent indeed, right? Of course, and animals can be rabid and also humans. But that phrase is again, you don't. I'm talking about the phrase. I know that rabies can be transmitted. Uh, I'm just saying that that's a mad dog is a thing, whereas people don't talk about mad. Um, uh, other things, right? I mean, like, it's it's just, it's not a common phrase. Like, squirrels can be rabid. Bats are frequently rabid. Um, but you don't, nobody says, like, look out, here comes a mad bat, right? Um, or, like, there's a mad squirrel on the loose, right? Nobody, nobody talks that way about other, whereas a mad dog, um, uh, a mad dog is a thing. Like that's a that in the nineteenth century that was a very common phrase, right? Um, uh, you know, look out! It's a mad dog. Um, mad dogs dangerous. I mean, it's dogs with rabies, right? It's dangerous. Um, so, it initially asks her to grant the simple proposition: a dog is not mad. You grant that, and Alice is like, I suppose so. I mean, she doesn't want to be. Un, you know, I'm going to say, well, some dogs can be mad. I've been told probably, she's probably been told to watch out for mad dogs. Um, but, um, but she, and that's, that's actually, I think what Alice just said there um, is an example of what I was asking for before, a way to contradict somebody politely, right? I suppose so. Uh, a very lukewarm agreement she gives to the cat, right, on its initial premise. Um, anyway. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, I agree that humans become mad. And the word is, again, it's, that's what the madness in uh, this whole segment of the story is, is playing on, right? Um, We'll talk about madness next week. Um, next week, we're going to get to, as we did not today, get to the Mad Tea Party. Um, maybe this will help us a little bit better to understand Chapter 6 in retrospect. Um, things were moving along strangely enough up until Chapter 6. But in chapter six, a kind of chaos broke out that is unlike the kind of chaos we've seen uh, to this point in the book, which a lot of which was internal to Alice. And that is, you know, about her and her relationship with her feet or her head. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but to book, I'm going to be here next week. Um, so I, I will be here next week and uh, I'll be back again. Um I'll be out again, rather, next week, because uh, the week after that is Myth Mood. So um, I will be here next. I'm planning to be here next week. <laughs> I shouldn't predict. I'm planning to be here next week. Uh, and then the week after that, I'll be I'll be driving to Myth Mood the week after that. So, um, but uh, anyway, okay. So let's, let's just stop here. Pretty sure we're getting Chapter 7 next. Yes, we're getting Chapter 7. So we're getting there. We didn't get there. I was hoping to get there tonight. We didn't get there tonight. So tell you what. Let's... Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to cut my losses here this week. 
let's not read on this time. Let's plan to do seven and eight. We didn't get. To, we're now officially a class behind. Uh, so let's um, uh, let's let's just do seven and eight for next time. Uh, I think that will. I think that will give us plenty to do. Um, so we'll do that for next time, and then we'll move on after that with the Queen of Hearts. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. See you guys next week. Um, next week, and then Mythmoot. So don't forget, you now have precisely 12 hours from this moment uh, to register for in-person attendance at Mythmoot, and then it shall be too late. You can still attend virtually. You can still uh, uh, attend digitally. But you can't um, uh, you can't attend in person after 12 hours from now. Anyway, thanks everybody. Have a good night, and I will see you guys soon, next week if not sooner. Bye now. Mm-hmm.